You'll make your way to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Once upon a time, neighborhood boys were known to build tree forts together out of scraps of lumber that they'd find here and there around the neighborhood. And once your tree fort was built, you formed a club. It was you against the world. Everyone else was an outsider. From then on, no one could enter the treehouse unless they knew the secret password. And there was one other rule. No girl could ever learn that password. You know, when it comes to relating to outsiders, some local churches seem to operate too much like a boys' club guarding their tree fort. From every appearance, it is them against the world. Now and then they might yell down a warning or a derogatory word at outsiders from their perch in the tree. But as far as anyone can tell, the password of salvation is kept safe with them. Now such an approach we know very well is not the way of Christ. Do I speak to you today as a child of God? Has the Spirit of God opened your understanding so that you have come to trust that Jesus died in your place to pay the penalty of your sins against the Holy God? Has God opened your eyes to see that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and has given you eternal life? Has your heart swelled with joy as we have considered the resurrection of Christ in song today? If you know that Jesus Christ has redeemed your soul, then you know that Jesus did not save you to form an exclusive club with others so saved. He did not form us into a body that is to keep the way of salvation as a secret code to ourselves in our little club. But if Jesus has genuinely saved you, then you understand that the good news of saving faith in Christ is a message that we are called to broadcast to those outside of Christ. We have indeed news to tell. Good news. Ours is not a message about future possibilities. As we look into the future, we think this is going to happen. Join with us. Not at all. We do not preach philosophical theory. All these philosophies in the world, and we believe this philosophy is the best. Come and learn. Hear from us. No. The Gospel we proclaim is far more than a merely comforting word to those in distress. And there's certainly a need for such words, but that's not really what we're about. Not ultimately. We have received good news. Good news about something that has actually happened. Something that Jesus has done. And it is our calling to announce that message to outsiders. In fact, as we return today to the fourth chapter of Colossians, we learn that this mission to proclaim good news to those separated from Christ is one of the natural implications of the Lordship of the risen Savior. Remember last week we looked at the vision of Colossians just to acclimate ourselves to its message again. But we found here the universal centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign Creator and sustainer of the universe. He is the risen, ruling Lord of heaven and earth. And when we truly grasp that Jesus is Lord, all of our human relationships are transformed. 
We noted that last week, beginning at verse 18 of chapter 3. Wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. And remember the references to Lord through that section of Scripture? To the authority, the risen power, the sovereignty of Christ. That is to radically change all that we do in our relationship with others. How we relate to them. So we talked about wives and husbands. Children and fathers. Slaves and masters. Or in our setting, employees and employers. Maybe the best application there. But as we looked at these relationships, remember we found in verse 18, in the Lord. In verse 20, this pleases the Lord. In verse 22 at the end, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, as for the Lord. That's how we are to work. Verse 24, from the Lord. Serving the Lord Christ. We see this emphasis that it is the Lordship of Christ that permeates this message. And that relationship that we have with the risen Christ is to, on a vertical level, is to radically transform every relationship we have on the horizontal level. What we learn at chapter 4, verse 2 and following is that the Lordship of Christ should also then radically affect the way that we relate to those that are outside of Christ. To those who have not been saved. Rather than isolate ourselves in our Christian tree forts, seeking to relate as husbands and wives, as children and fathers, behind closed doors, rather than simply coming out from time to time and hurling angry words of hostility at outsiders, the life of the genuine follower of Jesus Christ must be oriented toward proclaiming the good news of what Christ has done. Announcing that news in the world. Christ didn't come to simply address a small club. He came into the world to proclaim the truth of salvation in His name. And so we in relationship with the risen Christ, are to do exactly the same. Rather than isolating ourselves, we find in these brief instructions that follow from Colossians 4 and verse 2, we find here some characteristics, two characteristics in part, that must mark our lives if we are to relate to outsiders in submission to the Lordship of Christ. What will this look like? If I'm genuinely relating to Christ as I should, and that relationship radically affects my relationship with unbelievers, what does that mean? What does that look like? The first thing that will characterize such a response to the world on our part is persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. Now, it'll take a little bit to tease this out, but let's go to verse 2 and notice here this call to what we'd say is a general imperative. A general command to these Christians to whom Paul writes. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's fairly generic there at that point. Continue steadfastly. The original language indicates here that we are to persist in prayer, to devote ourselves to it, to be busily engaged in prayer. That's not how the average Christian, the cultural Christian for sure, thinks. To be diligent and devoted and busily engaged in prayer? I might loft a prayer here and there when I'm really in trouble. 
But we're called here by Scripture to live a life of prayer, being watchful in it. The word means to be alert, awake, or we use the phrase, I don't know where it comes from, but on the ball. Be alert to what's going on. Remember Jesus in the garden as He spoke to His disciples. Watch and pray. They were exhausted. But in the midst of this challenge that was before them, He said to them, watch and pray. Be alert. Be alive. We all struggle with spiritual sluggishness and distracted inconsistency in our Christian lives. And Paul just says here, to put it bluntly, knock it off. Wake up. Wake up to what God is doing in this world and give yourself to diligent, persistent, alert prayer and with thanksgiving. Our energetic prayers are not to be marked by a demanding spirit. They are to breathe a spirit of thanksgiving in all things. Think of this for a moment. God pours out His blessings upon His people every day. Every one of us. All day long. We are heirs of the glories of heaven. We are the recipients of God's mercy over and over again. No matter what trials you may be facing, no matter how difficult the circumstances may be in your life right now, do not forget this. God pours out His mercy and His grace upon us every day, all the time. And if we really connect with that reality, then every prayer that we offer will be offered in a spirit of thanksgiving. There is so much for which to thank God. So we don't come with a demanding spirit, yet alertly, persistently, devotedly, in a spirit of thanksgiving, we thank God and pray to Him. That is to mark our lives. Now, two ideas here that I'd like to bring out and just let us focus on it for a moment. First is what we might call privileged access. When we think of prayer, this is privileged access. Do we realize the cost of prayer? For us to come into the throne room of God, we may be doing the dishes and lift a prayer to God. You may be driving in the car and lift a prayer to God. You may be gathered here formally with other Christians on Wednesday night and to be seeking the face of God in prayer. We pray together as a congregation as we gather on the Lord's Day. Do you realize that in every one of those instances when we seek God, that moment was bought by Jesus Christ? It was bought by His death. How on earth do we as sinners who violate the law of God over and over again in our lives, what authority do we have to walk into the throne room of God and make our requests known? Our authority is that Christ the Lord is risen today. And by paying the penalty of our sin, He makes access into the throne room of God and says, come on in. Come in and pray. Now, in Christ, reconciled to God, we are free to come boldly before the throne of God without fear. And the only reason is Jesus Christ. Privileged access. Secondly, I'd like us to think about partnership. When we think about a life of prayer, we are partnering with God. We do not devote ourselves to persistent prayer in order to change God's mind. 
to somehow influence the divine power to do our bidding. That's not what prayer is. Genuine prayers labor with God for the glory of His name in this world. Biblical prayer understands that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth and that He is sovereignly calling out a people for His name to save them from sin, to reconcile them to God. And so our privilege is to join with Christ in this endeavor by pleading with God for the success of the Gospel. Now I emphasize this evangelistic lean in this general call to prayer because that's where Paul is going to head with this. He's going to lead us down that path. Having called the Colossians to be an energetically, persistently prayerful people, he now narrows in and says, and I'd like you to pray for me. So from the general call of verse 2, we come to the specific request that Paul has as the Colossians heed his call to live a life of prayer. So verse 3, at the same time, as you are living this life of prayer, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Let's labor for a while over these two verses. But Paul is clearly calling for prayer here for us, probably referring to his evangelistic team, those who are attending him while he's in prison here. Let's please pray for us. And what is his request specifically? Verse 3, that God may open to us a door for the Word. What does that mean? An open door is a common metaphor for ready access to an opportunity. We note here that Paul is fully aware that only the sovereign God can provide such an opportunity. Pray that there would be this opportunity for the Word, that is for the Gospel. Christ crucified, risen, and all that it means. Interestingly, Paul does not seek here prayer for an opportunity for himself so much as an opportunity for the Word, for the Gospel. Whether he's a part of it or his team is a part of it or any Christian is a part of the process, he prays that the Word itself would penetrate into an open door. And only the powerful message of the Gospel can do that. We recognize that, don't we? We cannot knock down doors that are locked. We cannot enter into just any opportunity that we design. We need the sovereign God to open opportunity for us to proclaim this Word. So Paul, Paul requests prayer for himself and for his team that this opportunity might be provided. And it's an opportunity to declare the mystery of Christ. What does that mean? That wasn't a novel that was written recently that Paul's talking about here, the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ, as we understand this in Paul's terminology, is a truth that God chose to keep secret, to keep hidden, but now has revealed. Because salvation history has progressed sufficiently, he makes understood a truth that has not been known before. That mystery in this context is Christ that I may declare the mystery of Christ, is to declare Christ. It is that He, the Word, has become flesh to purchase His church. And for preaching this glorious truth, Paul says, I am imprisoned. I have come to the place where I have made clear 
This message of Christ having come to rescue us from our sin and from our guilt. And for that, I have been put into prison. Now that's amazing in and of itself. Paul does not plead for his readers. I mean, what would you do? You're in prison. This is not a happy situation. But you are in prison. My first request, I think, would typically be, please pray that I get out of here. That I'd be rescued from this situation. But what does Paul pray? You see where his life is oriented. It's in sync with the risen Christ. He says, pray that there would be a door of opportunity to proclaim Christ crucified and risen. His prayer, verse 4, includes this, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. The word clear is, is a tripping point for us in the English because it doesn't mean that I would use distinct, clear speech and not mumble or something like that. But it's a word that means to reveal, to make known. That I would be able to display this truth in a way that made sense to people. In a way that exposes who Christ is, that makes Him known. Pray that I would be able to proclaim this mystery of Christ so that the blinders come off and people hear the message. We may keep the Gospel to ourselves as if it were a secret password or we can be faithful to our calling and reveal the truth about Christ to unbelievers. Now, as we, as we bring this truth and we, we're just reading in here in this conversation, this call to prayer and then this request for prayer for Himself as He proclaims the truth. How does this affect us? How does it affect you? As a church, how should we respond? I think in light of this discussion, we may ask the question, do we pray for one another that God would open doors of opportunity and enable us to make known the Gospel to unbelievers? Do we pray that way for one another as a church? Are we beseeching God? Are we laboring with the Lord of the harvest to open such opportunities that we might faithfully proclaim the Gospel to unbelievers in a way that genuinely reveals who Christ is? This is a prayer project for Eden Baptist Church. In our private devotions, we need to be seeking God and pleading with Him that He would open opportunities for us to proclaim the truth. Sunday nights often when we're gathered here in the closing prayer, the prayer will be that God would open doors of opportunity to us this coming week. That is not a ritualistic prayer. That is a prayer recognizing that only the Lord of the harvest, the Sovereign Lord, can open those opportunities and that we need to be laboring in prayer to see that happen. In fact, then, as we pray that prayer commonly on Sunday nights, as we go off into this work week, we need to all individually continue to pray such prayers. It's a prayer project we need to join in together. As we gather on Wednesday nights, we, there is a gathering. Those of you who are able to come to that and are pouring out your prayers with other believers, we need to realize that's why we're gathering in part. There are many other reasons, but we're gathering to plead with God as a congregation that He would open opportunities for us to proclaim Christ. We cannot create these on our own. We cannot turn hearts. And we are missing something essential if we are not a praying people to this end. What we're missing is not simply an opportunity for us. 
what we are missing is an opportunity to join with the risen Christ to do what He is in fact doing. Calling out a people for His own name. We are praying that that Word might find access and that we might then clearly reveal the truth of Christ. We must make this a prayer project as a church and continue to beseech God. So I think if we really come to terms with the risen Christ and what He is doing, and we long to be part of that work to proclaim the Gospel, it will show itself in a characteristic of persistent prayer. Secondly, we will add to that as we work our way through verses 5 and 6, wise conduct. It's, It's not enough to simply pray We must have a culture of prayer, prayer for one another, that then moves from prayer into the real world where we live wisely. We conduct ourselves with wisdom. Verse 5, now from the general call, verse 2, to pray to the specific request for prayers for himself and his team, verses 3 and 4, he now turns to the Colossians and says, verse 5, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders making the best use of the time. There's time and opportunity. Secondly, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So in verses 5 and 6, he now exhorts the Colossians concerning their ministry of the Gospel and how the Lordship of Christ is to transform the way that they relate to unbelievers. Conduct yourselves wisely. Or literally, walk in wisdom. Live out your life in wisdom. Specifically, we're to walk in moral skill toward outsiders, that is, people outside of Christ or unbelievers. How are we to walk wisely toward those who are outside? We're to make the best use of the time. The Greek idea helps us here, and that is that we are to buy up or redeem the time. Life is short. Life is busy. Christ is coming. In the light of these realities, we are to buy up opportunities to proclaim the Gospel. Seizing them to declare the mystery of Christ to unbelievers. Let's come to terms with it. We are not long for this world. And every believer with which we interact is not long for this world. Our time is short. We must buy up those opportunities and live skillfully if we intend to share the message of salvation in Christ with unbelievers. Now as a church, let's think through this as well for a moment. We're striving to do this in community together. To buy up opportunities such as we do in our neighborhood in the summer months and some of these opportunities have just passed. We've taken opportunity to reach out to our neighborhood in Vacation Bible School and to provide a, an opportunity, a, a welcome to our neighborhood in the Night to Unite. These are buying opportunities. They take time, they take effort, they take concentration, but we're buying up opportunities. In our last season of home groups, we're striving to help one another do this as a church. There were many contacts that were made, numerous specific connections with people in order to share the Gospel. 
And if we got our calculations right, there was something like 38 meals that were shared with unbelievers for the specific purpose of getting to know them, building a bridge, proclaiming the Gospel of Christ over that home group period. A few highlights to add to it. One family invited neighborhood children to a fun get-together and 60 people came with several spiritual conversations taking place. A couple of families joined to invite 40 neighbors to a mother-daughter tea and 19 of them came. Another group went the other direction and had five ladies of the church meet with just one unbelieving neighbor. And as they shared their backgrounds, what their backgrounds looked like compared to where they are today, that gave that woman a chance to hear the Gospel five times in just this neighborly gathering. And the conversations continued. Several of our teens invited a number of unsaved school friends to a Bible study and others were invited to an outreach activity where the Gospel was clearly shared. And the number of teens heard the Gospel in these gatherings. Flyers were distributed to approximately 70 homes which brought several adults from a neighborhood to a four-week evangelistic Bible study. All of these things, none of them are ideal. We could do much better, much more. We could critique everything that happened. But as we look back on this season of home groups and these gatherings of individuals within our church to try to work together, this is what we're doing. And and for some, I think this may be missed. Let's be careful that it's not. This is not an effort to see more people come to our church as such. It's not something that we want to do to affect our community on a social level. It's not simply... We could add many other ideas of what it's not. But what, what it is, is an opportunity to put exactly into practice this passage, to buy up opportunities. Are you busy? I'm busy. Is life short? Indeed it is. We have to act to take opportunities to find occasions where God may open the door to proclaim the Gospel of Christ. That's what we're striving to do. We took an opportunity also this summer for our teens, many of them, to go down to minister to Jewish people in Las Vegas as many live there. I don't have time to read what is a really remarkable letter of response from that ministry, but I'll just pick out one paragraph that I think gives us a snapshot of an opportunity. The crafts write to their supporting churches. People are still talking about them. The young Minnesotans with a heart for people, for ministry, for Israel, and most importantly, a heart for God. They shone the brightest at the Thank God for Israel program at one of our retirement living centers, and they sang the Israeli national anthem in Jerusalem of Gold in Hebrew, causing more than a few Jewish tears to be shed. The people they served were amazed at their kindness and attentiveness, at their eagerness to listen and care. Now hear this as opportunity. An elderly Jewish lady said to us, from the time I was young, I've always thought that Christians hated us. Today, 
I found out that's not true. Let's understand. It was not a perfect trip. It was not a perfect mission. It was not free of problems or trials. We don't sail off into the sunset as successful evangelists because of any of these events. But let's see them rightly. We're seeking to buy up opportunities. And what we are doing as a congregation needs to be something that we're doing as individuals as well on a consistent basis. Occasionally, gathering as essentially an entire church to reach out. Gathering maybe a bit more often in smaller groups to join together our efforts to find an opportunity for the Gospel. But then individually living such a life where we are persisting in prayer, pleading with God to open, not just for me, but for one another, opportunities for the Gospel, and then wisely seeking to purchase opportunities, buying up the time. As verse 6 adds to that idea, letting our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how we ought to answer each person. Gracious there, don't think in terms of simply kindly words. Gracious words. But this is rather words filled with the grace of God that He has poured out onto our lives and so we extend in our speech to others. Words that are filled with the grace of salvation in Christ and the implications. So we're not merely to shout down words of ugly rebuke as we secure the locks on our religious tree forts. We are rather to speak out in the world among outsiders words that are filled with the grace of salvation. Speech that is seasoned with salt. Great debate as to what that means. If we go Greco-Roman, it just means winsome speech. If we go from the Hebrew background, and Paul lives in both worlds, so how can you choose? But if we go to the Hebrew background, and that might fit the context better, it means simply wisdom. Words that are seasoned with salt are words that are seasoned with the wisdom of God. And that is perhaps the idea here. That we would know how we ought to answer each person is the the idea. That we would be thinking and laboring and learning how we can best proclaim the truth to an unbeliever. Peter put it this way, Memorably, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. How does that request come? I haven't lived to see the day that somebody knocked on my front door and said, would you please describe to me the hope that is in you? I don't think that's probably going to happen to any of us. Out in the world, it's very rare that someone comes and says, I am just overrun with guilt. I know that I'm breaking God's law. I feel guilty. I pillow my head every night in guilt. Will you please tell me how I can be relieved of this? Probably not going to happen. But people all the time are speaking words of guilt. They are speaking words of idolatry. They have false gods that they're clinging to and desperately hoping that they will provide for them some satisfaction and some happiness. It might be money. It might be a child. It might be a job. It might be family. It might be possessions. But in some sense, they're clinging to idols to say, give me joy 
and the idols never do. Do you realize what a privilege it is as a believer in Christ to go to bed at night and pillow your head without guilt and without running from anything? Knowing our weakness, knowing our sin, but knowing how to relate to a perfect God through Christ. The unbelieving world does not have that. And they are speaking words all the time that display the emptiness, the hopelessness, the idolatries of their heart. We need to be discerning to begin to see how we can probe in those areas. Many times simply through questions. What are you resting in? What are you trusting in? How do you figure this out in your life? Now, if you're awake, if you're with me at all, I think you've got to be thinking, this is right, this is what God has called us to, but I've got to deal with this fear thing. You may be sensing inadequacies. I always think about the great comment after the person is gone, never when I'm with them. And how do I do that? I've had so many great witnessing opportunities that happened five minutes after the person had left. Have you had that? If that guy had perfectly figured out, you want to go hunt them down and tell them, listen to this. But it's too late. They're past. The opportunity's gone. And it, it, on and on it goes. And we say, how do I gain such wisdom? Well, I'm not going to give you ten points. Here's the checklist of the bullet points. Follow these ten rules and you will have wisdom as you seek to open opportunities with people. But I would give you the one big picture. I think the way that we grow in the wisdom that discerns how to talk to an unbelieving world is to grow increasingly enamored with Jesus Christ. See Jesus. See Him every day. Love Him. Adore Him. Worship Him. Come to know who He is. Come to understand what He's done. Review and deepen in your understanding of the Gospel on a consistent basis of what Christ has done to rescue us. Fill yourself with the vision of Christ. And when we see Jesus as our Savior, our Rescuer, our Friend, our coming Lord, the One we've never seen, though strangely we love, the more that we see Christ, the more of Christ will flow from us. And the more we will begin to see the, and see exposed the idolatries and the emptiness of this life. Know Christ. Fill yourself. Saturate yourself with Him. And proclaim the news. Now, on, from that big picture, Let's get down just a little bit to the nitty-gritty. We've got to act. We have to speak. We have to venture out and take opportunities and say things that we may find fearful. You know, there's a thing for those that are involved in music, for those that are involved in sports, they call it practice. You don't sit around and read in a book about this sport and then say, I think I'm ready now, and run out into the field and think you're going to be God's gift to your team. Every day you fail. You get into the mix. 
You don't do something right and the coach yells at you or the music teacher tries to set you straight, usually more graciously than a coach might, but they're, they're telling you you're doing it wrong. You messed it up there. It's practice. Do we think it's any different really with witness for Christ? We're going to be so enamored with Christ, so full of knowledge of Scripture, so skillful in our speech, we're going to become God's gift to the unbelieving world as we walk in now and succeed in every opportunity to proclaim Christ. Not on your life. We're going to have to practice. We have to venture out, take risk, speak a word, and sometimes we'll fail. Sometimes we'll learn some hard lessons. And yes, sometimes there will be ridicule and rebuke. And that's hard for all of us perhaps to take. In fact, I think if our speech is filled with the grace of God, it will be hard to take. I don't understand the glib witnesser. The one who doesn't care what anybody thinks. They're just getting everybody told. Who is that? How, what's going on in that person's heart? I don't think that's where we should be. I think Jesus' heart hurt him. I think his soul was grieved when people ridiculed and spoke ill of the truths that he shared that were life-giving. And so will we. But we've got to get out in the game. We're striving to do that as a church. With all of our weaknesses and all of the steps that we need to take forward, we're trying to partner together to buy up opportunities and to grow in wisdom as we speak with people. Don't think you need to be a professional. What you need to be is a follower of Christ. And then as you teach the truth to unbelievers, as you proclaim the Gospel, be ready to learn. It won't always go well. But God has a way of taking our weakness and turning it into His strength for His glory. Last week, I would trust some of you were here that we were moved by the idea of Christ's lordship in family relationships. I think as I've interacted with people and thought through the passage in our own home, there was conviction there. There was a, a call from God, yes, this is right. To relate vertically to the Lord means that horizontally there will be a radical change in husband-wife relationships and child-parent relationships and how I work and how I interact with the boss or how I treat my employees. And we say yes to that. Listen, let's bring that same idea here today. If Christ is the risen Lord who is saving souls in this world, then how we relate horizontally to unbelievers should be radically changed. We should not be lobbing bombshells down on the, on the outside world. We should be going in among unbelievers and pleading with the Lord of glory, persistent in prayer, pleading with Him to open opportunities for us, being wise in conduct. Do we relate wisely to an unbelieving world, buying up opportunities, seeking to steer our speech such that we present the truth of Christ? Speaking as we ought to speak to unbelievers is not simply a matter of intellectual defense. Although that is in places appropriate. It's a hope that possesses us. A hope 
that we gain as we see Christ more clearly. It's that hope to which I called us as a congregation in the call to worship today. Why do we come with hope amidst trial and disease and difficulty? Because Christ the Lord is risen. Why do we gather here today to sing and to proclaim with a concept that we are secure in eternity because Christ the Lord is risen? We gather here in this place to magnify the Lord because of what He has done in our lives. We take now these glories of Christ and we are to go out into this world and to speak. Perhaps I speak to someone here today Maybe you've joined in here and there with church events and you certainly have a desire for other people to come to know Christ the Savior. But you say, you know, I've really not clearly articulated the Gospel of Christ such that someone could come to Him in salvation. You say, that's me. I'm going to ask anybody to raise their hands, but you say, I don't know that I've ever clearly proclaimed the Gospel to an unbeliever such that they could be saved. If that's you, I want to encourage you with something. And that is that I will pray for you. This church will pray for you. We need to take up that project and pray persistently and devotedly that God would help Christians be what Christians were saved to be. Let's pray for each other. And as we pray that prayer, I would plead with you, Start. You're never going to be a professional first. You're going to take some swings and miss. You're going to say some things you wish you hadn't said quite that way. Maybe you're going to offend someone you'd rather have as a friend. But get into the game. A little bit at a time perhaps, but reach out to someone who's an unbeliever and create, develop, Pursue a relationship with them. Or in some other way, through counsel, through instruction, we won't take time to look at it here, but in some way, find a place to open your mouth. To talk to someone who needs to know of Christ crucified and risen. And maybe, just maybe, I speak to someone where the opportunity is in fact the sermon. The open door that God is able to open is this sermon. And you're realizing, you know, when He said, putting my head on the pillow every night without guilt, having full confidence that I stand right before a holy God, not on the basis of my works, but on the basis of what Christ has done, I don't have that confidence. I honestly don't. Maybe this message is your opportunity that God Himself has sovereignly provided, putting it in your mind to come here today and giving safety on the road to get you here today such that you could hear that you are a sinner before God who needs to repent, to turn to Christ, and to trust Him as your Lord and Savior. We can't give that to you. We can't sell it to you. We can't in any way and would not want to force it upon you. But there is a free gift that Christ offers of salvation in His name. 
such that the idolatries that are dragging you down and the emptiness that constantly visits your soul will be taken away and replaced with the joy of the Lord so that you want to proclaim that joy to others. That's a step down the road. But I would call you today, if you're in that place, to speak with someone as we leave here and to ask them, can you talk to me further about what the pastor was talking about today? Anytime this week, anytime today, we would love to do that with you. May this be a day of opportunity for you as you turn to Christ as your Savior. And find a joy that you've never known before. Let's bow for prayer. Father, a joy that we want to proclaim. As we see the beauty of a sunset, as we witness the victory of our team, as we see a child accomplish something they've worked on for so long, we want to tell someone. And the greatest experience of our life as the people of God is to be delivered from sin and to be reconciled to You, our God and our joy. Lord, if this has really happened, then we want to tell someone. And I pray in behalf of those who are really struggling to do that because of fear, of idolatry, of something that draws them away. Perhaps it's sin itself. It does not give them the confidence to speak to anyone about their sin. I pray, God, that You would move in our hearts to draw us to the place You want us to be. By Your Spirit, teaching, directing, encouraging, convicting. And may we become the witnesses of Christ that You would have us to be. I pray to this end that You'll work within us and bringing to salvation those that You would be pleased to bring even this day to saving faith in Christ. We lay these requests at Your feet, pleading for one another that this week You will open doors of opportunity that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.